Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, my guest today is the entrepreneur, author, and angel investor, Jeremy Silver. Smart, musical, and creative, Jeremy has used his remarkable creativity to boost the UK's digital sector. A music maestro with digital in his DNA, Jeremy started his career working with Massive Attack, Genesis, Meatloaf, as a music executive in the 90s, to name but a few. Now as chief executive of Digital Catapult, Jeremy is helping the UK's high potential tech entrepreneurs transform some of their brightest ideas into reality. Now, Jeremy, welcome to Changemakers. I've got to start with Massive Attack, one of my favorite songs ever, Unfinished Symphony. You're the book that I've opened, and now I've got to know much more. Let's talk about you. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here. Let's start with, with that music career. Um, I mean, some some amazing bands there. And also, what a decade, the 90s. I mean, a, a, a decade of musical explosion, quite a happy decade, as I as I uh, remember it. Let's let's take ourselves back to the, the young music executive, the young Jeremy, sort of like working with these iconic brands of the era. It was an extraordinary time, but I don't think at the time any of us quite realised that this was going to be the probably the most successful decade that the music industry had ever seen um and, and you know to culminate in a in a disastrous crash of course but mm. um but before that yeah an enormous kind of uh, uptick of, of extraordinary activity and, and amazing bands and amazing uh range of different sounds as well really um, i mean i mean that's my memory of it was just like the experimentation. I mean, just like, you know, just mentioning three bands there that we just, you know, we've I mean, massive attack, Genesis, Meat. I mean, what a, what a, what a range you could get. I mean, the sort of the, the, the I guess the diversity of, of that, of that. I never imagined that I was going to work with, well, I never imagined I was going to work in a record company, let alone work with some of those bands. And so it was a bit of a shock to me. And uh, I was certainly treated like, you know, the newbie and the sort of the, 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 the wet behind the ears boy when I've, was sent off on the road with Genesis within about a month of having arrived at Virgin Records back in 1991. And um, they were doing a town hall tour of the UK. So we were playing places like Wolverhampton Civic Centre and other similar, similarly glamorous locations, which was kind of amazing to see Genesis, who had just come off the road from a stadium tour of the US, putting their entire stadium rig into Wolverhampton Civic Hall. That was quite interesting. Half of it was in the parking lot in the backyard there so you know it was a it was an interesting time and, and i mean a lot of people talk about the 90s as possibly the last really happy decade and of course music was such an important part of that of you know and not not just of the i guess the social cultural creative circuit but i mean you know even politics was defined by musical choices things can only get better. I mean, you know, th that was the sort of, that was the era where optimism and positivity and hope were, were very much the order of the day. Was that, was that, was that really, I guess, the seedbed for your career as a very optimistic person, I think, in terms of how some of that character was forged, do you think? Well, I thought it was an extraordinary thing to be able to spend time working with with bands like that. And I just I discovered that one of the things that was really interesting was that the more successful the artist I worked with, the more professionally nice they were. But of course, professionally nice and, and actually nice aren't necessarily the same thing. But it did make it possible to work with people who, I mean, you know, Meatloaf, 
who I, you know, when they first told me I was going to have to work with Meatloaf, I think I thought, well, this is the greatest challenge to my professional credentials I've ever experienced. How on earth am I going to work with this guy? But, it, you know, he turned out to be the hardest working, most amenable, most brilliant character that I, you know, I could have hoped to work with. Two out of three ain't bad. I mean, no, absolutely. Now, you also have delivered an extraordinary TED talk looking at the evolution of the Verve's classic song, Bittersweet Symphony. Just, just, just tell us why. I mean, an extraordinary, um, extraordinary talk, I thought. Tell, tell us a little bit more about it. Well, it's it's. I mean, it's a talk that just traces the evolution of one one particular piece of music and its roots in uh, in, in you know Black American gospel songs um, and the way in which that particular song uh, started life in one place, uh, probably as part of an oral tradition, probably not owned by anybody, but passed from family to family, probably from church to church, and then evolved and was taken up uh, by um, the Rolling Stones, um, who transformed it and made it their own. And, um, and, and then the weirdest twist was the fact that their manager decided at the time that what the Stones needed uh, was an album of classical versions of their songs, uh, which it would seem the Stones were in the, not in the least bit interested in producing. And so he got this uh, this other guy, the, the, the manager, Andrew Luke Oldham, was an extraordinary character. Uh, he got this other guy who was a classical composer essentially to write versions of all these songs. And, um, and so produced something which really had very, very little to do with the original. But that piece that he wrote, uh, you know, which was for this may be the last time, which is the song that, that Bittersweet Symphony originated from, uh, that was the, the orchestral piece that the Verve then sampled. And then the Stones sued them for all the rights on it, even though they themselves had virtually nothing to do with it at all. So it, it sort of gives you a sense of the kind of venal nature of the industry, the, 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 the willingness to litigate on the slightest point and the total injustice of, the, of, of you know, where does credit really reside in all of this? I mean, that, that certainly um, was, was one side of, of that story. But you also said... Um, in the talk, something that I felt, you know, for, for those of us and well, I guess an entire planet um, living in lockdown, you said music allows us to empathize and discover other people's experiences. In terms of the role of music today in a world where we are apart, where things are so different, so difficult, bring us up to date in the role of music for you and indeed the role of music in society. It, it's uh, there's a, an extraordinary book by uh, Oliver Sacks called Musicophilia, in which he tracks the the experiences of various people who've suffered forms of brain damage uh, throughout their lives, um, and the way that music has proved resilient in their within their systems, despite the fact that they couldn't speak or they couldn't recognise uh, family members and so on. And and the the sort of implication of his argument is that music is somehow laid down in something very primitive and very fundamental in our brain in almost a different system from language or or or, or other parts of, of expression and i think that is how we all connect mm. with music to a greater or lesser degree it it connects us rhythmically it connects to our the, the very mechanics of our being and and gives us an escape mm. because of that which none of us still i think fully understand but when we get captured by a piece of music it takes us to a place that we couldn't imagine getting to in any other way. And of course, you know, lots and lots of individual artists 
have dramatized that, have taken that in different places, have given us insights and experiences that we wouldn't otherwise be able to have. And, and you know, I think that we've all, uh, in different ways, found music to be more and more important during, during lockdown. And, and in a way, the, the lack of live music, I think, has been felt even more acutely because we feel so uh, kind of, you know, cloistered and, and you know, claustrophobic, really. Claustrophobic. I was thinking, yeah, I mean, I was thinking that. I mean, also, I mean, you, I mean, you mentioned sort of like it, it, it sort of fulfills some elemental needs. I mean, um, Katie Derham, the proms presenter, was, was saying the other day that, that the very act of singing is one of the very few times you actually breathe correctly, that it's not just a it's not it's not just a sort of it's not just for the soul and the creative. It's actually just for physical well-being that music has got so much um, to give on on that front. Um, now, let's let's move on to. Um, Digital Medieval, um, a great title, I've, I've got to say. And I suppose the question, um, if um, if we are in medieval times, is there, is there a digital renaissance coming up in terms of um, the future that we're looking at as we sort of plow our way through through COVID? Does a little bit, just a, a quick snapshot of the book and perhaps the lessons you'd now draw. I, I sort of published this book back in 2013 and... Uh, and, and the digital medieval title was very much a sort of reference to the kind of crudeness, um, and but but also early innovation that was going on in the first period of, of you know up to the sort of first dot com bubble and so on. I'm actually in the process of recasting that book and re and actually rewriting it, and it, I am going to call it Digital Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> is, is this going to be our bittersweet symphony? Am I going to be taking you to the court? I said it first and it's on air. <laughs> no, I think I trailed it in the book, actually. And it, there is a certain historical logic to this. But but I think, you know, the, the, I mean, apart from the debate that we can have about whether the Renaissance was really more creative than the, medi the medieval period or whether actually huge amounts of innovation were happened in the medieval period, which current scholars apparently would argue was actually the case. Um, you know, we have seen this incredible flowering and and what's happened between you know 2000 and here we are into 2020 uh, is that we have seen the kind of the full flight of so many of these ideas coming to fruition so you know a thousand flowers bloomed in the first dot-com bubble 20 years on we actually have commercial services that are that are rendering all of that real and and, that, and that's you know in some respects it's gratifying and in other respects has all kinds of uh, now it appears, and we are discovering uh, disconcerting undercurrents and aspects of those things mm. that we that we're less happy with. So, uh, you know, after the Renaissance, perhaps there's another decline that will come, but we'll see. Well, I mean, we'll we'll, we'll focus on the Renaissance for a moment because obviously you are a Renaissance man when it comes to digital. I mean, you've you you were one of the co-founders of the pioneering music subscription service Uplister. Um, often compared to Spotify, you you spotted that that market of streaming. Um, I was reading um, a piece that you wrote in City AM about um, how life would be so much harder if we didn't have Joe Exotic um, in it in terms of Netflix, um, and um, that actually that that whole streaming, that whole digital opportunity. I mean, I can I can remember. The first time I heard Spotify, I'm thinking, this is witchcraft. This is amazing. What am I going to do with all my CDs? But you were at that early stage of spotting the change that I guess that was going to have such a sort of influential piece. And it was all digital. I mean, how far can digital take us, do you think, in terms of the, the human experience? Well, I think, it, it, we've, I think the experience of lockdown has showed us that we wanted to take us a lot further because it's still a, not a great experience. And although we've 
probably developed and transformed our uh, digital adoption, if you like, more rapidly in the last six months since we first were locked down back in March uh, than some people predicted it would take another five years to get this far. So, that, so the fact that we're all communicating the way we are um, is both an, af an affirmation of the value of the digital platforms and at the same time, I think, you know, all of us are acutely aware of how they remain inadequate. You know, it still is a terribly poor experience compared with real life. So we've got an enormous way to go. And there are all sorts of interesting developments uh, uh, around, uh, you know, and we've been involved with some of those at Digital Catapult uh, around the development of volumetric capture in virtual reality, for example, which, which looks to create much, much more lifelike experiences in a virtual world. But we are still at such an early stage of development around that. And there are still so many uh, developments and so much powerful computing required in order to actually create an experience which is even close to what we experience in real life. Mm. I mean, I, I want to come on to Digital Catapult, but before then, I mean, just to, pay, just to sort of um, uh, just keep with the, with the trend spotting um, for a moment, you, you have your own lessons from leaders podcast the, uh, the future networks um a lot of what that seems to show is the power of 5g the power of the internet of things a real sense of of the shape of things to come what, what excites you when you look to that near-term future what what can we look forward to what, what have others said to you that you just think that'll be brilliant should be investing in that <laughs> yes i i think one of the things that we're seeing and we've seen it for a while but it's continuing is uh, more and more high definition experiences. So, so what digital is really able to deliver at its ultimate uh, is something that becomes so close to reality that it's hard to distinguish between the two. Now we're not there yet, but but supercomputing capability, uh, the kind of power of a five G network with it, with low latency and high media push through, those those kinds of capabilities are going to give us experiences that are still a gleam in the eye at the moment, and and whether that's in the mm. quality of the audio and, and and an immersive surround audio experience or whether that's in the, the a visual immersion, uh, I think those things are going to come. Now, I, I'm not a great believer that virtual reality itself is necessarily the be all and end all. I think in lots of ways it's, it's, it's quite limited. I think augmented reality is, is a much more interesting and compelling proposition in which all of that vivid, visceral experience that we've sensed is possible within virtual reality, starts to actually merge with the real world, be superimposed upon it, exist in the context of, of real places, uh, I think that holds really, really interesting potential. Even, you know, whether it's about understanding mm. what, you know, the drama of historical events that took place in a particular location. Uh, so, you know, going to the Tower of London and being able to actually engage with characters who seem as if they are as lifelike as you and I are, but from the 16th century telling us about what went on there. That kind of experience, I think, is, is you know, we, we're not there yet, but it's, it's coming. I was going to ask, is, and, and how near is that, that near-term future? Because, you know, a lot of, a lot of technologists that, that I interview will talk with great excitement about the ability of computers to overtake human beings in their ability to learn and, and the, 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 the world of the 100-year life, that so many things are right on the doorstep. But, of course, this year feels a year where some of that might feel dare I say, a bit like hubris. I mean, have we been overly excited about the realities of, of, of digital or actually 
are we at the beginning of that new age? Absolutely at the beginning of it. And if you think about the the kind of moral outrage and scandal and paranoia about deep fakes um, and and the more recent fear that is is starting to creep in about fake fakes, i.e. very, very lifelike pictures of people who don't exist at all who are created by artificial intelligence, you start to begin to to enter what that world might be like. And unfortunately, we're, we're sort of entering it from a rather dystopic kind of perspective. So we're, we're looking at it and thinking about all the the ways in which these things can be used negatively but actually the, the the potential on the positive side and and from an educational perspective from a cultural perspective I, I, you know i think there's there's incredible potential there so we, we're going to have to figure out how to regulate it but the opportunity is huge well let's talk about where you're developing it because the digital catapult that's where you're the ceo i'm sort of envisaging of you sort of like a a modern day queue sort of like wandering around equipping the sort of like commercial versions of James Bond with all the latest digital kits. Um, you're working with small companies, large companies, really driving, um, I guess, innovation and discovery in, in that digital world. Tell us about a typical day at the Catapult. <laughs> well, at the, obviously at the moment we're in lockdown, so it's, it, it, there's not an awful lot to describe. And, uh, you know, we're running about 80 projects a day and they're all running online at the moment. But, you know, I think if, you know, I mean, let me describe a typical day. Andy Haldane from the Bank of England giving a keynote speech at a conference we've organised about agent-based modelling, how you evaluate innovation in the digital age. Uh, and, and then a group of startups pitching the, the UK and Europe's top investors with their latest and greatest ideas uh, about machine intelligence uh, and machine learning businesses you know, 10 of them in a row, boom, 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 all talking about the things that they're doing, uh, followed by a meeting with uh, a big telco uh, vendor who is looking to to really engage with UK industries and try and find ways of, of really helping them build their business case for investment. Uh, and um, and then followed probably by a session where we sat sit down together as a team and think about how do we make sure that our entire team mm. retains its mental health throughout all of it and doesn't go completely nuts. And all of this with the with the glorious backdrop of St Pancras behind you, St Pancras Station. St Pancras on one side as the gateway to Europe, and the British Library on the other side as the gateway to knowledge, iconography. Uh, I mean, it really is an iconic location. When you look out of those windows, you get a sense of a those you know iconic buildings. But of course, far below you are the city streets, people walking around and up there are, is this sort of brave new world, this brave new future being being created. I mean, you talked about, um, obviously, people are working from home, um, away from, from the catapult at the moment. Given the subject matter of, of the digital world um, as, your as your expertise, how, how much fit have you all found it yourselves in terms of working in a completely different way, a much less physical way than, than, than previously. Yeah, I think the translation in from everyone piling into an office every day to working from home and 150 people in our case, instantly overnight uh, reverting to working from home uh, was a challenge, but I think probably less of a challenge for us as a, as a digitally oriented business than um, you know other companies who rely on much more on, on the physical the manual mm. but having said that we've put an enormous focus all the way through this on people maintaining a work-life balance you know the, the problem with being on zoom 24 hours a day is you can be on it 24 hours a day 
and it would kill you, you know. And, and so, you know, but everything is structured. Spontaneity is very hard to do. Uh, you've got to build in physical movement. You've got to build in breaks. You've got to build in going out into the fresh air. It's really weird. I mean, I, you've probably experienced it too, but you sort of think you're fine, but maybe I'll just take a 10-minute walk around the block. And you go outside and you have that 10-minute walk, and when you come back, you realise, wow, that really helped. Mm, the, re the real world matters. In, in terms of, the, you know, obviously a, 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 a big part of, of the the cell, I guess, of the catapult is a collaborative environment, large and small companies working together. I was reading about some extraordinary work um, that's being done to um, uh, train nurses virtually. Um, and that just, I, I just a very quick sort of bringing to life of some of the projects that, that listeners might might be interested yeah, in. Yeah, well, that was part of our response to, to COVID very quickly was, was uh, we'd already have quite a, a close relationship with Microsoft and a uh, uh, a virtual reality studio that we established called Dimension. And when COVID hit, um, we kind of started to think about, well, how could we help and what could we do? And to be honest with you, I, I was kind of skeptical that in the face of the sort of emergency, uh, that medical teams would be very interested in trying to work out how to use augmented reality to help themselves. But what, what emerged was, A, that they, there was an appetite for that, and B, that the level of training and the speed of training that they needed to get through to train hundreds of nurses and doctors on how to you know just simple things like how to put on ppe for example uh, in a way that was safe and hygienic turned out that actually doing uh, using augmented reality to do that and showing people in 360 degrees what that looked like from every angle uh, was something that was incredibly helpful so so that was something that we we did and is uh, was used in nightingale hospitals and I, I think is you know is still being used now by um uh, public health england and um and health education england so so we've you know, that's that was a really interesting thing but but there's so many different examples of things we've been doing um one of my favorite companies that came through our augmentor uh, program last year was a company called extend robotics who were uh, uh, about four really bright graduates out of uh, imperial college uh, who had the idea of creating um flying drone robots uh, who could do maintenance of things high above the ground and um so Flying robots is obviously appealing to anyone who's sort of vaguely geeky, uh, but actually they're incredibly practical applications. So it turns out that, that the world spends about seven billion pounds a year maintaining telegraph poles and that most of that money is spent driving people to the thing, uh, making sure they're safe while they climb up it, then spending about five minutes up there repairing a panel or something and then making sure they get back down safely again. So if you could get a drone to do that, the savings are huge and they've done incredible work. And mm. they now have a drone that can go and perch on a pole uh, 50 feet above the ground uh, that can grip uh, a Phillips screwdriver head and open a panel. Uh, and the all the controls for that were all done in virtual reality by someone on the ground. It's extraordinary because, I mean, I mean, th this is the world that I get very excited about thinking about. I've got two young daughters and I think about the world they're going to grow up into where drones go from you know effectively a, a bit of a specialist sport whether it's a kind of a hobby or 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 some very specialist application into it's just going to be what we see it's going to it's going to not even probably appear to be technology i mean it's interesting that um i, I read on your linkedin profile that your goal is to always understand technology trends the digital landscape and where the consumer is heading next and i i, I guess so much of today is about this interview is about where we are where we are heading next i i suppose to take you back 
um, to your earliest days. I mean, here you are. We, we haven't even mentioned your, your PhD in English literature, but we have mentioned the music, um, your music career. We've mentioned your role as an author, an investor, founder, speaker, CEO. What did, what did the young Jeremy think he was going to do? What would he make of that of that CV uh, description? Now? I've got no idea. I thought I thought I thought I was going to have to be a poet. I thought that I thought that poetry was probably the most important thing in my life for quite a long time, and um, and actually, I recently had the experience. I got sent by the British Library um, a recording of some poetry readings that I'd done in 1986, which was a really weird experience to listen back to it, and quite emotional actually. But, but I mean, you mentioned the British Library. I mean, I mean, creativity is also it's not it's not just the sort of the harder applications of of technology. I mean, a, a big part of your life is is the creative industries. You're on the board of the Creative Industries Council and, and a trustee of, of of the British Library. That those softer values are clearly things that that matter. Do you think that in this you know sometimes quite alpha rush to the kind of technological age that there are some of the softer aspects like books, for example, and other sorts of things that may well be the casualties that over time we come to think, ah, oh, they were the CDs of their time or that's it. Or, or do you think there is a more respectful balance? Well, I don't in, think, in I don't play? think that, that, you know, the work of the British library is, is, is one of the softer values. I think the work of the British library is absolutely at the core of our culture. And, and uh, you know, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's a deliberately provocative and excellent question, Michael. But I mean, the reality of course, <laughs> is, that, is that a universe of knowledge exists in, in, in books. And books are more than just the knowledge that they contain. They also, phys their physical uh, nature says a lot about their, where they come from and, and how we experience that uh, and understand that information. And so I think the role of, 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 of the British Library in particular and libraries more generally as being sources of information, knowledge, guidance, stimulus, provocation uh, and encouragement, uh, you know, are absolutely at the heart of everything that we all um, and it's not just And it's not, not just in the arts. I mean, I think the sciences also and technology has an enormous amount uh, to draw from from written work, but but I suppose what I'm what I'm driving at is that you know you'll hear government ministers that will talk about the importance of science, technology, and mathematics, and you know a lot of what you're talking about is a more creative, less tangible, I guess, expression of of some of those values. You know, in terms of how they feed into things like productivity and realizing potential and. And yet what we know is that those intangible assets are, I guess, where the magic is. Well, I think they're where the humanity is. And I think that those of us that are kind of have gone through as much of the digital experience as, as, as I have um, are starting to come out the other side of that and realising that we need to retain our humanity in all of this as well. And that, our, mm. and, and that the emotional and the, and the empathetic aspects of doing business are just as important as the alpha male uh, aggressive target busting. Um, and that's not to say that we shouldn't have that aggression or that we shouldn't have that kind of ambition, um, but the way that we achieve it best uh, is through understanding and empathy with our fellow human and for not forgetting that. And I think that that's, you know, if you, if you look at the way that, that uh, executives in Silicon Valley, for example, at the moment, are increasingly instructing their children 
to remove screens of any kind from their rooms for period for extended periods of time you know at the end of the day um i think it's not just me saying it i think the more digital your life becomes the more you realize that you need life as well as digital so i i you know it, it seems ironic in a way that i should be a proponent of that in the face of this but i think that's, that's what it, yeah. but i but i think that you know if i was to sort of look at a golden thread in your career i think that quest for understanding is actually quite an important part of what from the outside in it looks like what makes you tick i mean you know, you're you're a fluent french speaker and and um, and being bilingual, um, I, I noted that you said it allows you to have different thought processes and makes you think about different points of views. I mean, curiosity is a big part of the Jeremy, I guess, we've come to know, isn't it? It has to be, I think, from my point of view. If I stop learning, I think I, you know, that would be the end of things. I, I, yes, you know, look, the world is an extraordinary place and there is still an enormous amount that we too do not understand and know nothing about. Um, and that's daunting when you think about it but also hugely exciting mm. i mean and i i guess just last question i mean you've 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 talked in your advice um that goes with this lockdown list your your kind of your advice to listeners is to trust your instincts that when a tough choice comes prioritize your instincts they won't lead you astray but i suppose you've got to feed your instincts with with knowledge and insights i mean is that is that been you think what's 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 what your lesson has been um in life yes i i think we we all feed our our brains um and our brains do extraordinary things and i think if i've if you know if on a few occasions where i've made mistakes in in life it's because i didn't follow my instinct and i went with some sort of in, intellectually argued idea rather than just following my gut and going yeah no that's where we should go and I, and so you know i when you go out for a run or when you go for a swim when you come off those experiences your brain brings you answers to questions that you were struggling with before you went that says that we do have something extraordinary in our heads that we still don't understand what it does or how it works uh, to me that's the most exciting thing that we will will learn more as time goes by what a what a wonderful place to leave it, Jeremy. Thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. A music maestro, a digital dynamo, an advocate for aspiring tech titans, and a champion for creativity. Little wonder he knows a thing or two about a world of change. And his advice to you is simply this. When a tough choice comes, prioritize your instincts. They won't lead you astray. Join me next time for Changemakers. <laughs>